And for the sake of time, I will keep introductions brief this morning, but we are joined by Dr. Mary Pickett. She is a practicing internal medicine and geriatrics physician at OHSU. She did her medical degree and residency at University of California, San Francisco. In addition to her clinical practice, Dr. Pickett develops curriculum and teaches for the internal medicine residents at OHSU. And we're so grateful to have her join us today and share her teaching with the Providence community. Thank you, Dr. Pickett. I will turn it over to you. Thank you so much, Laura. And I really apologize that it, it took a bit of um, safe cracking to get me into Providence this morning. And um, so thanks for waiting while we broke through a few firewalls. You guys have a very secure grand rounds. And um, I really appreciate being able to be here today. So I'm, I'm actually a primary care doctor and um, I'm going to speak with that angle today primarily. And we're gonna talk about late or long-term effects of cancer treatment, which is a topic that needs some attention by primary care doctors, and I will explain why. Um, so as we launch here, I just wanna mention I have no disclosures, and then um, talk about what I'm hoping to cover today, which is really to identify what is a cancer survivorship plan and what are appropriate components of a cancer survivorship plan to recognize adverse effects of cancer treatment that can prevent present at a time that's really distant from those primary initial years of cancer therapy. And then to also think through management of some specific symptoms and concerns that are frequently encountered after our treatment of our most common cancers, which would be breast, colon, and prostate cancer. So th this is a fantastic story of success. Um, this slide shows us the estimated and projected number of cancer survivors in the US um, going back to 1975 and projecting forward to 2040. And, Here's where I truly want to appreciate out loud all of our um, pharmacologics researchers, our oncologists, our radiation oncologists, our oncologic surgeons. We are seeing our patients surviving cancers at rates we've not been able to enjoy before now. And um, I in no way by talking about hazards of cancer care um, mean to underappreciate or underplay the fantastic story that we see here. But this is also demonstrating to us that we have a growing group of people who share this unique past and yet have individual stories to tell. And as a primary care doctor, they're going to be in our care forever forward after treatment of cancer. Um, so let's think the most common cancers that we're talking about here in men would be prostate cancer, colorectal cancer, melanoma, and the most commonly survived lethal cancers in women, um, potentially lethal, but survived would be breast, uterine, and colorectal cancer. I wanted to pause, of course, today is 
the one year anniversary of George Floyd's death. This is a photograph from Portland's White Coats for Black Lives. Um, this was an emotional place for me to be on uh, the day that we had this rally. And let's remember that we have a lot of work yet to do. The Cancer Survivorship Group is a privileged group. Um, and collectively in the United States, still Blacks have the highest death rate and the shortest survival um, from cancers. And uh, particularly Black men have still the highest cancer incidence in the United States. And this is, of course, a story that folds into it all kinds of um, aspects um, of uh, social determinants of health, access to care. So um, as we speak about cancer survivorship, uh, we do need to remember we have equity work to do. Currently, what is projected is that half of all men and a third of all women will develop cancer in their lifetimes. And uh, this um, front page of a glossy brochure was put together by the Institute of Medicine in 2005, actually, when uh, that group published a decree that said um, cancer survivors should be provided with a survivorship care plan and helped to define what that was. Um, and within this document, they called upon primary care doctors and providers to be a part of the group that helped to put together a survivorship care plan for patients. Now this has become an area that is shared. Um, we have actually new specialists in oncology whose whole area of focus is cancer survivorship. Springing up in multiple medical centers, including our own, are survivorship clinics where patients can think with a provider about their specific care history for cancer and what that predisposes them to in future years and think about their own survivorship care plan. And I'm hoping to demystify what are we talking about here um, in terms of a care plan. So what does belong in a survivorship care plan? Well, I'd say first and foremost, the record of care. And you'll understand soon why I'm so passionate about that. Um, some consideration of what are expected late and long-term effects from treatment, a screening and surveillance plan because sometimes surveillance uh, has some very specific um, needs after cancer treatment, um, psychosocial support. Uh, there are certain cancers that can be passed uh, risk for cancer can be passed to other family members. And so sometimes there are first degree relatives who need to know they have heightened risk. Sometimes there's genetic testing for the patient or family members. Chemo prevention is an aspect of the care plan. And for certain cancers, risk reducing surgery to prevent related cancers, thinking here particularly about uh, BRCA gene mutations, 
um, all of this is relevant. And what I think we should focus on today, because there's a lot of learning to be had, is what are the late and long-term effects of our common cancer treatments and um, what should we be anticipating as we continue to care for these patients. So cancer treatment is very involved and uh, there are multiple aspects to it. Um, we are gonna take each one and just consider um, what are some of the ways this can predispose a patient to late effects of cancer care. Um, and I don't mean for you in this next portion of my slide set to be taking copious notes or mental notes that are, uh, you know, trying to memorize for future, what are all these different problems that might occur, but just to really cultivate a way of thinking as somebody who continues to care for a patient who's had cancer. So let's think first about radiation and what are late effects that can come from radiation. Um, first, second cancers are certainly a, a hazard from radiation. Um, I think if you wait long enough uh, in someone who's been radiated with significant dose, especially early in life, it's at least 8% that will develop a second cancer. And let me just, pardon me, let me just uh, jump to show some of the most common zones that are radiated. Um, the zones that are radiated really are chosen not just to hit the cancer primary, but to think about where are lymph nodes in our body, where is spread of cancer. And so um, in the upper third, you'll see mantle field radiation. Um, and then below there's paraaortic, um, inverted Y or pelvic. And um, it is useful when you've had a patient who's received radiation to really make a note of where that radiation has been. Um, because that's where you're gonna experience the adverse effects from radiation. Some radiation, and here's the example of childhood lymphoma care with mantle radiation. Some radiation is extremely highly correlated with future risk for cancer. So if you have had childhood lymphoma radiation with mantle, um, you have a 25% lifetime risk, I'm sorry, a 25% risk of breast cancer that will occur um, within 30 years of your treatment. Um, and so there are special screening guidelines for someone who's had this exposure. Um, some guidelines recommend beginning breast cancer screening within 10 years of the end of radiation. The risk is really strongly elevated in this group. Let's now think about radiation to a variety of different parts of the body. Well, I think um, what is important to know is that there are not just immediate effects of radiation, 
like the dermatitis that we can see in our patients, but um, radiation can induce changes in the vasculature. There is an endarteritis obliterans that is known to occur with radiation, and that can um, cause you to have a vulnerable vascular bed to future harm. So if you can imagine you have a more fragile microvascular bed, you have fibrosis in your endovascular walls, and it only takes an event downstream that generates additional inflammation or a time of perhaps um, thrombophilia. And suddenly you can coagulate a bed of vascular um, tissue that gives you a broad area of ischemia. That I think you may have in encountered in um, radiation proctitis, right? Radiation proctitis is pretty familiar to us as an ischemic injury following prostate cancer. Um, let's think about other things that happen from radiation in that pelvic area. Fecal soiling is common. Anal uh, ulceration and fistula are common. And then there is bone density decline that occurs from radiation. So pelvic fractures and hip fractures can also occur. And um, I would highlight that even when we're thinking about bead radiation in the prostate, there, these are common, common adverse effects. And they can happen sometimes 30 years, 30 years after the initial radiation event. Um, it is typical for women who have had radiation in the pelvic area to have infertility and postmenopausal bleeding is common. If we um, move up a little bit into the abdomen, um, motility problems are typical. Small, and then uh, bacterial overgrowth is common because of that. Strictures and fibrosis are um, a problem in the bowel. Malabsorption can be a problem from fibrosis. And um, the pancreas, of course, can be irradiated, especially in para-aortic radiation. I have a patient who had testicular cancer, and he has um, quite uh, brittle uh, diabetes that is insulin-dependent, um, most likely from his high-dose radiation. If you radiate in the head and neck area, you can have hypopituitarism, which is very common. Oh dear, sorry. You can have hypopituitarism. You can have uh, cataracts, tinnitus, and hearing loss. And then moreover, um, it is very common to have hypothyroidism, trismus, so tight jaw muscles, dry mouth, and because the spinal cord is there, um, I'll give you an example of a patient of mine who had um, radiation for his laryngeal cancer, um, having autonomic dysreflexia so that if you have um, a body stress like urinary retention. Um, you may have very labile blood pressure and heart rate from the spinal cord irradiation. Another thing that occurs with spinal cord irradiation is in the para-aortic area, you can have a dense myelopathy. So occurring progressively but slowly 
a little bit like you might see post-polio syndrome present years and years after an event because of nerve dropout, natural aging-related apoptosis. Patients decades after irradiation can have what is called lower motor neuron syndrome, where they develop weakness of their legs. I have a patient who had testicular cancer treatment, um, high-dose para-aortic uh, irradiation, and he is walking with two arm canes from his lower motor neuron syndrome. That typically occurs um, even without a lot of constipation and urinary symptoms um, and is primarily a motor phenomenon. And then uh, you can also develop pulmonary fibrosis. Sorry about that. And cardiac effects if you have radiation in the right area. We used to see quite a bit of coronary artery disease after effect from left-sided breast cancer treatment that involved radiation. We now see less of it because the doses are quite carefully uh, managed. And um, yet for people who had earlier treatments, uh, that is potential. This slide, I don't mean to overwhelm you, and I don't mean for you to, um, again, try to remember all of these adverse effects, but I would like to make a plug for you to catalog the specific chemotherapies that patients have been exposed to and consider what does this put your patient at risk for um, in their continued care. Some of these are well known to all of you. For example, steroids. I think everybody is aware that bone density later in life can be an issue, decreased bone mineral density. Um, avascular necrosis is a continuing risk, and then cataracts. I think also um, fairly commonly known methotrexate can cause some liver and renal adverse effects, and these can continue and present with a delay. And then a curious uh, leukoencephalopathy cognitive process that can take some years to manifest. Some of these other agents, for instance, bleomycin, which you might run into with head and neck treatment or lymphoma care, can cause a unique pulmonary fibrosis. Um, doxorubicin, breast cancer, is a cardiac concern. Cisplatin, the taxanes, vinca, um, for instance, in cervical cancer, ovarian cancer, neuropathy is really common, and hearing loss is always common in the same groups that cause neuropathy. And then cyclophosphamide can cause a hemorrhagic cystitis. Um, we have these newer agents, VEGF agents, the vascular endothelial growth factor agents, involving those TKIs, tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So in this group, we're thinking about Gleevec, serafinib, uh, bevacizumab, these VEGF agents, if you can imagine what they might provoke, if they're involving um, impaired vascular growth, then they can cause decreased wound healing. They can cause um, bleeding, especially in the GI tract, and uh, predispose 
to these problems later. Um, a curious thing, those uh, TKI agents are used for, for decades of treatment in some patients. And so even um, cumulatively, exposure to these can cause um, sometimes that reversible um, encephalopathy that is known as PRESS and um, can be devastating, as well as edema um, around the lungs, uh, pleural effusions. The checkpoint inhibitors are another new group, PD-1 um, inhibitors, CTLA-4 agents. So these are programmed cell death agents and uh, cytotoxic T lymphocyte uh, agents. These drugs, such as nivolumab, they are essentially developed to heighten our immune response against cancer. They take away um, inhibitors to our, um, our lymphocyte response against cancer, and they're highly effective, and we're really benefiting from them. Um, but if you can imagine, if you do take away a, a limit on immune response, you may have immune events that weren't uh, expected. Here's a list of um, delayed immune reaction events that have occurred after these checkpoint inhibitors. Essentially, any kind of autoimmune process that you can imagine, we are seeing with these. And some of them are occurring with a delay of um, more than a year from the time of exposure. Hormonal therapies, just quickly, of course, androgen deprivation can cause low testosterone because that's what we are antagonizing and all of the effects that go with it, osteoporosis. Um, we also see hyperlipidemia, coronary artery disease risk and diabetes. With tamoxifen, there's the thromboembolism risk and the uterine cancer risk. Now, these problems are not necessarily delayed from time of therapy, but let's remember how long these therapies continue. So they can be late effects, um, even after you consider a cancer long in the past, since we have people continue on these agents, we can see these problems in our care. Fatty liver and cataract also occur from tamoxifen. Aromatase inhibitors can cause bone loss, joint pain that's very distinctive and causes a lot of these patients to need to abandon treatment, cognitive symptoms, carpal tunnel, and some cardiac effects. And then this is the easy part, but there's some special uh, things in here. Of course, if you remove organs as part of cancer care, there are some predictable problems, lower immunity from splenectomy, of course, infertility issues for our patients if they have organs removed from the pelvis. I think many of us are really familiar with those extremely unfortunate, um, very common effects of erectile dysfunction and incontinence after a prostate surgery. But let's think here, with breast surgery, um, if you involve lymphadenectomy, you've got lymphedema risk, and this is one of those effects that can be delayed. Um, if you have compromised the lymphatics, 
It is when you have an event that causes swelling in the arm, such as a bad bee sting or um, a clot or a, a bad skin infection, you can then provoke lymphedema that later persists. And this is why we're pretty careful not to provoke swelling in anybody's arm who has undergone lymphadenectomy. So um, we don't like to use blood pressure cuffs on that side. And this is why is because lymphedema that has not yet been provoked can be. With lobectomy, I think it's easy to think, of course, you might have shortness of breath or cough or fatigue, but did you know there's a huge incidence of insomnia in patients who are status post lobectomy? It is thought that this may be an effect of um, atelectasis or hypoventilation causing some lower oxygenation in the middle of the night and repeated awakenings. Um, so this is a um, kind of an unexpected problem to come from lobectomy. And then with uh, gastric uh, or intestinal surgeries or pancreatic surgeries, we need to think about motility problems, loops that are left, blind loops with bacterial overgrowth, um, risk for adhesions and bowel obstruction, dumping syndrome in gastric surgeries, which, you know, if you, rapidly move forward simple carbs and sugars out of the stomach, you will be able to uh, first provoke a huge osmotic fluid shift, which can cause hypotension after eating. And you also will provoke a, a huge absorption of simple sugars that uh, that absorption does not outlast the spike of insulin that is generated in response. And so hypoglycemia is a risk after eating meals in patients who've had uh, gastric surgeries, and that is known as dumping syndrome. Um, and the diabetes that you can get with pancreatic resection, remember that you are uh, resecting not just beta cells, but also cells that make the glucagon, and you can have a much more fragile, brittle diabetes in that setting. Imaging, which our patients just undergo a whole lot of when they are having cancer care, can also provoke problems. So there's a high incidence in patients with iodine exposure from repeated contrast studies uh, to have thyroid disease. We know in MRI that nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, that unfortunate dermopathy is something that can happen. Second cancers can occur because there's radiation with imaging and then contrast nef nephropathy um, are problems. So, so taking care of a cancer survivor requires holding all of this uh, anticipatory knowledge about the care they've had and about the risks that their cancer care does give them going forward. And I think it's particularly helpful if you can help a patient of yours recognize an adverse effect and tie it back to cancer. I will say when I have been able to 
uh, put dots together and help a patient understand that a new problem they have is referable to the cancer care they received. I, I see them visibly relax sometimes and think, oh, this is an enemy I know. This is a problem I already have had. And this is more of the same and not a new problem and therefore not as frightening. I think it's um, very helpful for cancer patients who are completely reconciled with the cancer care they needed and grateful to have survived it. I think it is helpful to be able to understand when continuing medical issues are related back to their treatment. It is much more frightening for a cancer patient to have symptoms that are not well explained because they've been through that and they know that the, the explanation may be frightening. So to um, provide them with this is wonderful. Okay, let's think specifically about breast, colon, prostate cancer, a few common cancers and some um, very specific issues that can come up in care of those cancers. So in breast cancer, um, many of the hormonal therapies, tamoxifen, for example, can induce menopause and can create um, you know, symptoms, of course, that need some management. So in hot flash care in a cancer patient, one thing to be aware, um, of course, we're trying to avoid estrogen in someone who may have an estrogen responsive cancer. SSRIs, SNRIs are um, appropriate agents and um, venlafaxine is perhaps the most effective. Paxil can be used, but if you are having a patient on tamoxifen, you need to be aware that there's a drug-drug interaction and therefore paroxetine should be avoided in that group. Um, the tamoxifen will have a lower, less efficacious blood level if you combine it with Paxil, paroxetine. Gabapentin can be helpful. Um, and then many patients have vaginal dryness um, along with these menopausal symptoms. There are non-estrogen-based moisturizers that can be used, so Replens and Vagisil are examples. If the symptoms are severe, then there is wide acceptance that low dose and local therapies can be considered. This is not our first choice, and um, it is uh, worth talking it over carefully with the oncology team and the patient, but um, the lower dose estrogen ring or estrogen cream can be discussed. About a third in most people's estimates, although the estimates really range, about a third of women who have been treated with chemotherapy for their breast cancer will have um, what sometimes is called chemo brain. Um, they will have memory, cognitive change, and mental cloudiness. Especially they will have decreased concentration abilities, decreased multitasking ease. 
this is so common in our patients that it is worth normalizing it and screening for it and thinking with your patients about it. And it persists. And um, it is frequently responsive to stimulants. So modafinil has some benefit and dextroamphetamine and other class two agents have some definite benefit for many of these women. Um, we spoke briefly already about lymphedema. So this is common, up to half of women who have lymph node dissection completed and about a fifth if there's a sentinel lymph node biopsy, up to a fifth can have this. So I mentioned some triggers um, and uh, treatment if it occurs involve physical therapy by a specialized uh, rehab specialist and compressive garments. And then neuropathy is common just because of the types of chemo that um, our breast cancer patients receive. Fertility is a question that may come up if you have a quite young patient who develops breast cancer, um, who may not be at the end of their childbearing years at the time that they receive their cancer care. And especially because of the hormonal shifts in pregnancy, the high estrogen state, there are many people who worry, would it be safe for me to have a pregnancy following my cancer treatment um, or would it put me at risk for recurrence? So first of all, amenorrhea and infertility is really common after chemo. Amenorrhea affects most women who are treated with broadly effective chemo agents and um, is more likely to be reversible in women who are younger than 40 when they receive it. So if you have somebody with amenorrhea, the conversation about what to expect is useful. Um, your periods may come back. We would expect that. We do try to avoid hormonal birth control in women who have had breast cancer. But if you have a particularly young woman who is interested to have a pregnancy, who does regain her menses following treatment, the general accepted uh, rule of thumb is that that is okay. We don't see an uptick in recurring cancers in the women who have opted to go forward with a pregnancy during their disease-free survival years, um, even if the breast cancer that they had was estrogen and progesterone hormone positive. So that can be reassuring to your patient. Now let's think about colon cancer. Um, one thing about colon cancer is, of course, many of our patients have resections and some have ostomies that stay for long periods or permanently. And I think many of these patients never hear from a provider caring for them that there is such a thing as an ostomy cummerbund or an ostomy wrap. This is specialty lingerie. Um, it is available in lace, in all fabrics, and the idea of it is to um, allow intimacy with uh, less self-consciousness around the presence of the ostomy. So I think it's useful to counsel patients that this exists. 
radiation proctitis is a, a risk that people who have received radiation for their colon cancer uh, continue to have for all those decades we were thinking about and to recognize this when it happens. Um, it can cause significant bleeding. It can cause a, a tremendous colitis and um, pelvic and hip fractures. So consider that when you are doing your bone density screening, if you particularly when you see more exaggerated bone density loss in the hip relative to the spine. Urinary and sexual dysfunction is present in our colon cancer group. And um, if you have had a colectomy, uh, the norm is to have five stools a day. A lot of people um, feel comforted hearing that that is the norm and that they don't have diarrhea that they need to think of as diarrhea. It is just a more frequent stooling. Um, and then we'll move to prostate cancer for just last comments before um, we have a little time for question uh, and answer. So prostate cancer, um, androgen deprivation puts these patients at risk for osteoporosis. Bone density testing is appropriate. And I think many of these patients who are on androgen treatments now are on prolia as well. Um, that is a particularly helpful agent in this group. Um, cardiovascular disease is something that this group of patients is at significant risk for, as is radiation proctitis. Pelvic and hip fractures from radiation-induced bone density decline, urinary and sexual dysfunction, and then additionally, penile fibrosis, which can cause shortening of the penis. Low testosterone, here's the question. Is it okay to treat low testosterone and the fatigue and symptoms of low testosterone if you are distant from time of treatment of a prostate cancer. And of course, we think about stimulating prostate tissue with testosterone. And early on, none of us would recommend treating with testosterone, but there is good consensus that if a prudent interval has passed from prostate cancer, and I think many people will use a five-year uh, survival interval as a time of prudent interval, then it's risk relative to benefit discussion, and it is acceptable in most uh, oncologists thinking to initiate testosterone therapy in your patients who are most symptomatic. Take home points. Um, well, really, I wanted to just emphasize that our cancer survivors do have late or long-term effects that can present years and even decades after their cancer care. And I want to, to encourage all of us who take care of our cancer patients to catalog your cancer survivor's specific record of treatment. Um, and then look up those agents and think forward about the potential adverse effects that could occur during the years that you're caring for this patient. Um, the patients will be grateful to have that 
additional anticipatory thinking on your part. They are a group of patients who carry forward significant risk even after they have survived their cancers. Thank you so much for letting me um, speak today. Great, great. Thank you so much, Dr. Pickett. Um, I will keep an eye on the, the Q&A for you and go ahead and feed any questions or comments as they come. So I'll let our audience go ahead and, and think on that for a moment. Um, just wanted to call out, thanks so much for sharing this and um, just the powerful uh, psychological benefit that you've seen in your patients um, for for normalizing things um, and making them feel like they can make sense perhaps of some later side effects um, or, or or new illnesses that may connect to their past treatment. I think uh, an insight that I hadn't fully appreciated, so thank you. <clears throat> um, one uh, question um, I, I had while we're waiting for others, um, you mentioned that what is sometimes referred to as chemo brain um, can last. Um, do you have a sense of the duration in terms of months to years to lifelong? No, definitely <laughs> months to years. Um, and, you know, I think that it is really hard to make a projection for something like this because I don't think it was recognized all that many years ago um, and named and identified as something that we could track over time. Um, you know, many of these cancer treatments are the most highly effective agents because they're able to cross the blood-brain barrier, right? Then they can really eradicate cancer in places that previously it could hide. And breast cancer therapies particularly need to be able to treat cancer that may have had a micro spread to the brain. And so I do wonder for some of these therapies, is there hazard in part related to some incremental damage that occurs at the blood-brain barrier or um, a weepiness that might occur there that may just allow us to forever forward experience toxins in a different way, to have more of a chemical sensitivity. Um, but this is, a, this is an area that is, I'd say, recognized now, but not well understood. Um, and so projecting how long it may last is something we haven't been able to do yet. Great, thank you for those insights. Um, want to share here, thank you for a comment from one of our participants um, who noted um, development of lymphedema after um, Shingrix vaccine. Um, so, um, and perhaps I, I, unclear from the comment if that was um, provided in the same side of the, the arm perhaps where the surgery had previously been, but another good reminder that late triggers um, could uncover lymphedema. That's a fantastic reminder and and worth talking about with patients because who will remember not to get vaccines in that arm is going to be the patient. But, it, you know, I think um, unless someone has counseled that patient, they're not going to know um, 
to request the other arm always for their vaccinations, but what a what an avoidable problem, right? Right, right. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, here's a question. Um, have you written a summary of some of these ideas or are there resources that you would point us to to share with our patients? I have not written a summary of this, but there are there's a huge uh, number of resources out there and they're very easy to find. So if you go to the um, American you know, Cancer Society's website or any of, uh, it, it, or Google search, you will find really wonderful, reputable reference sites um, for um, cancer survivorship plans. There have been cancer survivorship plans that have been templated um, actually for every major kind of cancer, identifying the most common therapies that have been provided and expected adverse effects. So this has become an area where there is uh, well-organized information at your ready if you only look for it. Um, there are very scripted survivorship surveillance plans for different cancer types and uh, there are very scripted um, adverse event projections and what to watch for. So many patients now, before they graduate from their oncology care, will have an exit interview with a cancer survivorship specialist, right? This will be somebody who will sit with them, who, who will do exactly what I've thought through here this morning of thinking through cataloging of what the therapies are they have received, where they have had treatment by surgery, by radiation, um, and will think with the patient, here's what you are at particular risk for in future years. Let's have you tuck this, you know, handout um, that we've checked these boxes off on into a file um, or think about it with your primary care provider. Um, now, it is not every patient who gets to sit down with a cancer survivorship specialist, but there are resources that are readily available. And all you need to do is, you know, include the word survivor along with your um, cancer name or, care, or survivorship care plan and a cancer name. And you will find um, wonderful, uh, very legitimate uh, pre-prepared information about cancer survivorship. Great, thank you. Thanks for raising our awareness and we'll look to existing resources. Um, and my apologies, an update regarding our lymphedema um, occurrence after Shingrix. It was in fact not um, from a vaccine in the same arm and this person's oncologist had been quite good about reminding them. So perhaps wondering about an, an immunologic trigger. Um, don't know if you know of vaccines specifically producing this issue, Dr. Pickett. Well, that is fascinating. I mean, um, <laughs> I think mostly we are seeing lymph node uh, enlargement on the same side as a vaccine. And that we just saw that this year with COVID. And I don't know if at Providence, if the same thing is happening in your mammography center as in ours, where 
you know, we have stopped doing screening mammograms in the first month after COVID vaccine because of lymph node swelling. And mostly we're seeing that on the same side. But frankly, if you activate the immune system, you might see a little bit of lymph node activity everywhere, right? So um, I guess it is imaginable. I hadn't heard that for um, vaccination um, in the contralateral arm, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm grateful that in that patient, at least it wasn't a, a medical error of which arm was given the vaccine. Right, thank you. Yes, and we indeed have had similar issues with mammography after Shingrix. Um, I think I will uh, squeeze in one last question here. Um, colorectal cancer patients with ostomies have a high risk of developing hernias, such as incisional, peristomal. Does the risk of developing a hernia decrease over time for long-term um, ostomies? Any comments there? Uh, well, here's where I'll be speaking without <laughs> definite knowledge. I would expect yes, and I would expect yes because I think, you know, some surgical repairs leave a weak spot and that will declare itself um, and with, you know, diminishing likelihood over time, I would think. If you, if you, um, if you're really at risk for a complication from your particular uh anatomy around a surgical repair, I would think the risk of showing it would be highest in the initial years after the ostomy formation, but it's a great question. Well, thank you for taking a stab and thinking through that logically with us. Um, <laughs> and thank you so much for um, your patience with Providence Security um, and joining oh, us so today. Sorry glad that we captured you. Um, thanks so much for sharing your expertise and also um, just raising awareness so that we can all be anticipatory about taking care of our patients. So um, best to you, Dr. Pickett. We appreciate the teaching. Lovely. Thank you so much for letting me speak this morning. It was really a great pleasure to be here. All right. Take care, everybody.